You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue through the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30 is where we are looking this morning. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would work in our hearts. Father, we know that it's through your living word and through the spirit that you have given us that you, as a song says, create a clean heart in us. As we look into the truth of your word, as your Holy Spirit works within us, you make us more and more into the image of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as we study these, this teaching from Jesus on lust, that you would create in us a clean heart, O Lord. That you would root out the sin that remains. Father, that we would honor you with our eyes, that we would honor you with our bodies as well as our inner beings. And Lord, we pray that we'd be able to do this through the power of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, for the power that is at work within us. And Lord, we ask that you have your way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Question, uh, question 109 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks this, it says, does God in this commandment, referring to commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery, does God forbid only such scandalous acts or sins as adultery? And the response to it that follows, it answers in the following way. It says, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. God wants both our body, our physical being, and our soul, our inner being, to be kept clean and holy, which is why he forbids not just impure outward actions and looks and talk, but also thoughts and desires and things that we entertain in our heart and our mind. And the catechism captures the spirit of Jesus' teaching on lust. In fact, it's the same spirit in which Jesus teaches us on anger, which we looked at last week. There is more important and fundamental focus of God's law than just our outward actions. He's concerned about the heart. This morning, as we address this second of six antitheses that Jesus uses to teach the incorrect or errant understanding of the law, we see that as he did in his teaching on anger, and as he does in each of the six teachings in Matthew 5, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, Jesus begins his teaching on lust with the words, you have heard that it was said. 
And as I said last week, this is in order to show that he's not correcting the written law that was given by God, but rather he's correcting how the law was interpreted and being taught by the religious leaders of his day. And so in verse 27, Jesus states, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, most of us probably recognize you shall not commit adultery is a quotation that's taken directly from the Ten Commandments. This is command number seven, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. So Jesus is once again, in his teaching on lust, addressing kind of the same basic issue that he addressed in his teaching on anger. The religious leaders, they misunderstood and they mistaught the, the proper understanding of the law and the seriousness of the command of God. You shall not commit adultery had been reduced to strictly a prohibition against the physical act of adultery. And it was ignoring completely the sinful heart condition that is very much present in an individual long before they commit the physical act of adultery. And if you remember the illustration that I used last week when we were talking about anger, you know, the murder of another human being, as Jesus teaches, the murder of another human being is kind of like riding the train to the end of the line. There are a lot of stops before you reach the end of the line. And the same thing is true for lust and adultery. The physical act of adultery is kind of the end of the line of that train track. There are a lot of things going on before you get to that point in the human heart. And so we need to address those things, and that's what Jesus is most concerned about. He's teaching here that the aim of his commandments is to address the inner condition existing in an individual's heart that, if left unchecked, grows to the point where the physical act of adultery is committed. And so, yes, while God is obviously prohibiting the physical act itself, that is not all that he is prohibiting, and that is not his focus entirely in this command. So just consider the same thought that I had last week that I, that I laid before you last week when we talked about anger. It once again applies here, right? God is holy. God is righteous. God dwells in unapproachable light. He is perfection. And so does it seem fitting that his command would only deal with the prohibition of the physical act of adultery? Meaning by default that he allows his people space for lust in their heart, space for fantasizing, space for imagining and playing around with any number of scenarios, with any number of men or women and any number of acts that their mind could possibly come up with. I don't think that he would allow that. These are the sorts of things that he addresses. To think that those sorts of things are okay would be a drastic assault on the holiness of God and what he has won for us through Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that includes the wholeness of our being. That includes our heart, that includes our mind, and it includes our body. And all of this is accomplished in and through Jesus Christ by the power of of the Spirit of God. God is concerned with the purity of our bodies as well as the purity of our inner beings. So as Jesus teaches later in Matthew 15, 18, it is what comes from the heart, it is what comes from the inner being that defiles a person, which tells us that our, our outward actions flow from our inward condition. So that's what Jesus is trying to correct here. 
as he did with anger. He wants them to know God's concern was going on in the heart, not just a physical act of adultery. And on top of that, there was another misunderstanding that was going on that was being held amongst the religious leaders regarding the aim of this commandment. What had happened in Jewish society is largely the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, was viewed, and I'm, I'm quoting D.A. Carson here, not so much as a function of purity, the way that it was intended to be viewed, but as of theft. And so largely in Jewish culture, they viewed it literally as committing theft amongst or against another man's wife not so much as a function of personal purity. And so Jesus was trying to bring back its meaning to the original intention that God gave it, that it wasn't just about theft, because God gave another commandment about theft. It was about the purity of the heart. You know, this is something that you and I can learn from. You know, what, what, what had occurred in Jewish society regarding this command is not unlike what can happen amongst followers of Christ. You know, just as the Jews reduced the commandment and the seriousness of this commandment, we can be equally nonchalant at times in our own attitude towards sin. You know, one example is what Jesus is trying to correct here. You know, I think, I think all too often, Christians are comfortable with the false conclusion that since I haven't done blank, I haven't sinned. And we completely ignore what's going on in our hearts. And it is being way too liberal in our assessment of sin when we do that. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, holiness is a matter of the heart, not conduct. We need to be careful with classifying ourselves as being culpable for sin only when there is this shift that happens from having an evil desire in our heart to acting on that evil desire externally. An act of sin is not necessarily the conversion of an internal desire to an external action. Jesus makes it clear in here. He makes it clear in his teaching on anger. He makes it clear in his teaching on lust that trespasses and sins can happen internally, not just externally. So we need to make sure that we're not excusing our sin by confusing the difference between temptation that occurs internally and sin and evil desires that occur internally. And I think James is very helpful in helping us discern this in James 1, verse 14 to 16, where he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brothers. So temptation is when you're being lured and enticed by a desire that is within you. It doesn't mean that you've taken the bait, right? You have a desire to look upon a woman or a man. You have a desire to allow your imagination to run wild. That is temptation. It is sin when that gives birth to your desires, when you allow your imagination imagination to entertain those things, when you allow your mind to focus on them, when you invite those lustful thoughts to remain in your mind, that is when it becomes sinful. And so Jesus corrects this idea of sin only being external and points the Jews back to it being a problem of purity, an internal problem, not of theft, but of purity. And he makes this clear in verse 28. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So like he did on his teaching in, in anger, he, he employs that authoritative, but I say to you. And once again, he is confidently asserting that as the one to whom the law points, as the one whom fulfills the law and the prophets, he alone is the authority regarding the proper interpretation of the law, and the interpretation that he gives points to the abolition of lust in God's kingdom. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's two very important words or phrases there that we need to kind of grasp and take hold of that first word everyone that is a very difficult word to escape everyone who does this is guilty right that's a very high standard that's hard to escape and then commits adultery in his heart that's a high standard to escape if it occurs in your heart it is sin so Jesus is unequivocally confronting us saying if you've, if you've looked at another person who is not your spouse and you've looked upon them with lustful intent, and lustful intent, what that means is to have a desire for someone who is forbidden, to, to take them in with your eyes and have them remain in your mind, to long for that person, to focus on that person, to give them improper attention in your heart, you have committed adultery. You have broken God's law and are guilty. Now, I could take time to go into all the ways that a man or a woman can do this. And, you know, I could, I could, you know, do the typical sermon for men and admonish men, you know, don't take a second look at women, as is often the standard, you know, that kind of constitutes lust in Christian circle, right? One look is a notice, a second look is lust. Right? The, we've all heard these things. You know, I could say all the, the things that we often hear in a sermon on lust, but I think we've all heard them. And in addition to that, there's young people here. And so I don't really want to wade too deeply into these waters this morning. You know, to deal properly with lust, as with any impurity, there's something fundamental that must be present in our hearts. And that's where I want to go this morning. There is something that fundamentally has to be present in our hearts in order to kill the sins that have a hold on us. Without having this fundamental thing in our heart, we may put forth a great effort to fight our sin, but it will be to little result, and we'll just circle back around once again. Now, to be clear, I'm not negating the importance of effort. Okay, I'm saying it does take a great effort to fight sin. God's word undoubtedly teaches this. He, God's word teaches that there is a demand amongst followers of Christ for self-control, that there is a demand to deny your flesh, that there is a demand to run from lust and temptation, and there is an expectation that we will take captive the thoughts in our minds and not let them rule us. But these are only effective when our heart is right. You know, an excellent example of the commitment required of a believer to fight sins is uh, in the book of Job. We see Job say in, ver in chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze upon a virgin? So Job had made a covenant not to lust. But simply stating a promise does not keep us from sinning. Right? In order to persevere in purity, 
The promise Job made had to be rooted in something that produces in him the steadfastness and the self-control and the self-denial that had the power to uphold the covenant that he had made. So for the follower of Christ, the source of that power is threefold. And I'm going to focus on just one of them this morning, but I'll give you very briefly all three. The first one is first and foremost a right understanding of God. All appropriate responses, all appropriate ways of living will flow from the correct understanding of the character and the holiness and the supremacy of God the Father in heaven. He must captivate our minds and our hearts as our superior affection, which will cast out all inferior affections. That has to be first and foremost. The right view of God leads to right living. Second, is the Holy Spirit of God that is present in our lives, that is present in every single believer, that we receive when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that empowers us to destroy sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verse 19 to 20, the same power that the Father used to raise Christ from the dead is at work in all of us. And so we must have the right view of God. He must be our superior affection. We must understand that it is the Holy Spirit of God that empowers us to fight sin. And third, and what I want to focus on, is we must have a transformative understanding of sin itself and the deep consequences of it. We must have this unwavering view of the profound, soul-destroying, life-stealing, person-condemning power of sin. An inadequate view of serious sin will result in a diminished or non-existent zealousness for holiness and a non-existent pursuit of becoming more and more like Christ. We must know and understand the power and the seriousness of sin that we all must deal with. You know how you know you're misunderstanding the beauty of the gospel? You know how you know you're misunderstanding what Christ won for you on the cross? It's if you have a view of sin that since Jesus died for you and sin no longer rules in you and you are secure in Christ, it means sin isn't a big deal anymore. You have the kind of attitude, all is forgiven anyways. It doesn't really matter. What's the big deal about sin? Yes, you are secure in Christ, and yes, sin no longer rules you, but we dare not make the jump to this idea of sin is not a big deal in our lives anymore. To do so is to miss the complete beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he won for us. It is to miss the reality that Jesus Christ continues to intercede for us before the Father, and it misses the beauty that Jesus Christ will bring us into glory. Sin is a big deal and remains a big deal. Do not let your security in Christ diminish sin's destroying effects on your life. And so we must continue to walk in holiness. We must have a zealousness to walk in purity before God. We must also always have the right view of ourselves. That it is by Christ alone, through faith alone. And listen, brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that daily, through multiple ways, on multiple platforms, is trying to train us that we're relatively good people. 
is trying to train us that with some effort, everyone is relatively good. As followers of Christ, we need to guard our minds against this kind of worldly, incorrect assumption that makes sin not a big deal. You know, this idea is so prevalent. LifeWay did a, a survey conducted in the U.S. in 2018. 69% of Americans disagreed with the idea that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And 58% strongly disagreed with it. Now you may say, okay, well that's in general culture. That makes sense. So, okay, how about amongst evangelical Christians? Well, 53% of people who would call themselves evangelical Christians believe that people are basically good. And when you have this view, this wrong view that people are basically good, it reduces the power of sin, it reduces our condition, and it takes all of the power out of the cross. You no longer need the cross. Only 47% agree even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, and that reduces the holiness of God. An inadequate view of the seriousness of sin amongst followers of Christ, is resulting in an inadequate seriousness in dealing with it. And it's creating this space where followers of Christ are comfortable listening to cutesy sermons that have a really nice message that don't make us look at ourselves, that don't convict us of what's going on in our hearts. We need to understand we need to deal with the pollution of sin in our heart. We need to understand the seriousness of it. It's like this entity that is present in our members that must be destroyed. It is a perverter of all good things that God gave us. Such as we'll look in a moment, the example that Jesus gives, the eye and the hand. It takes what God made to be good and it perverts them and it makes them wicked. We should hate that. In Romans 7, Paul is teaching about the law and sin's perversion of it in the human heart, and it's an excellent case study in what sin does. Romans 7, verse 7 to 13. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul here is, is teaching on the seriousness of sin. He's saying that through God's law, God told me what was good, God told me what was right, and the law itself is good and right. But sin seized an opportunity through the law and produced in me that which would lead to death. Through what was good and perfect 
the law. Sin corrupted Paul so that the true nature of sin would be shown. Basically, Paul is saying to tell human beings what to do is not enough. Even the perfect law of God telling us what to do is not enough because of corruption in the human heart. All of this idea in modern culture of, you know, live better and do better and try harder and be the best you, all of these ideologies and all basically every other religion and mindset is never enough because of the condemning hold that sin has on the human heart. It corrupts everything and therefore could only be dealt with with the coming Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the only one who is able once and for all to kill the sin that had a hold on human hearts. So my focus, as we talk about lust this morning, what I believe is a fundamental requirement in fighting lust is to hate sin is to understand how awful sin is, is to understand its wickedness so that you are repulsed by the very idea of allowing it happen in your life. That you are captivated so that it will guard your heart and mind whenever you start to entertain it, whether it be in thought or in deed, in lust or in any other way. We must hate it. Let's look at verse 29 and 30 together, and I'm going to end with five principles. 29 and 30, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Just, a, just an important note, the, the, the point of these illustrations is not self-mutilation, just in case anyone was reading it that way, okay? Uh, interesting point on that, though, anybody who wants to research, the church father, Origen, who was so close on a lot of things but got pretty much everything incorrect, uh, viewed this command from Jesus incorrectly, and, and I'll leave you to research what he did to himself because of that. I won't mention it now. Don't do it now, though. Don't pull your phones out, okay? Well, we're in the midst of a sermon. But it was an unfortunate misunderstanding, let me tell you. He didn't understand that Jesus was using hyperbole here. But in both illustrations, Jesus refers to body parts that are used in two of our chief sense, senses, sight and feel. And it's interesting to know that he doesn't just say, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin. He says, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And he's specifically using the right eye and the right hand because in Jewish culture, the right side of the body was considered more honorable, was considered more important in Jewish society. So from that, the first principle is this. The avoidance of lust may involve drastic sacrifices of things that you value. But it is better to pay the lesser cost now rather than the ultimate cost, which would be your whole body being thrown into hell. If you don't have a serious view of the corrupting effects of sin, you won't do it. You'll think the cost is too high. You won't pay the smaller cost now, and you will pay the ultimate cost later. later. But that also means that you won't be free of the sins that you struggle with. 
This means that we have to make some tough decisions sometimes in our lives. You know, I often talk about what we entertain ourselves with. That's a huge one when we talk about lust. You know, maybe for you, you value Netflix. Maybe the greatest thing that you can do, what's cutting off your arm for you, is canceling your Netflix subscription because you constantly go to the shows that are inappropriate. Like maybe for some of you, it's that you can't have internet at all. Like this sounds extreme in our culture, but this is what Jesus is saying. Cut off your arm, cut out your eye, do whatever you have to do so that you don't get thrown into hell. And in our modern mindsets, we think things like getting rid of the internet, getting rid of our computers, getting rid of technology, that's extreme. No, those are the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about. We have to deal with it seriously. It's important. You don't play around with sin. Principle number two, remind yourself constantly, sin is the reason that our King, that our Lord, that our Savior, that our friend Jesus Christ died. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself that it was sin that took Jesus to the cross. Jesus went to the cross in his love for us. He laid down his life for us. But if it was not for sin, he would not have had to die. We should hate sin because Jesus had to die for it. How do we allow ourselves to look upon a woman lustfully if we are sober-minded with that truth in our heart and our mind? This killed my Savior. I hate it. Principle number three, Jesus died on the cross to save you for heaven. Don't let anything get in the way of that. He died so that you may be with him. Don't let things get in the way of that. He won a beautiful thing for you. Walk in the power of that beauty. Principle number four, which I think is so important, our aim should not be don't do certain things like the Pharisees' aim, or it shouldn't solely be that. Our aim must be a clean and pure heart. As I've said before, our aim should not be what is okay for me to do. Our aim as followers of Christ should be how close can I get to Jesus? This is okay for me to do. The line of sin is here. It only brings me up to the line. That's not how we think. We think, how close can I get to Jesus? How much can I be like Jesus? I want to do that. I don't want to make space for sin to come in. Because when I get this close to the line, you better believe that sin's coming for you and it's going to get you. And we've got to stop living against the line and start living pursuing Jesus. Number four, reflect once again on Jesus' hyperbole of cutting out the eye and the hand. You know, if we have a right view of sin, we will do what is necessary in our hearts and our lives to mortify sin, to destroy it. But it's only if we understand it rightly. It's only if we take it seriously enough. Romans 8.13, I'll just leave you with a couple of scriptures. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Romans 13.14, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I, I am in no way here preaching a sinless life. I am in no way preaching that. We all know that we will wrestle and we will struggle with sin all the days of our life until we go to be in glory with Jesus Christ. But we must have this serious view of it so that we fight it, so that we stand in holiness before our King, so that we partner with the Holy Spirit that is within us to destroy the effects of sin in our lives, that the Lord may continue to sanctify us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. It's when we just sit back and go, ah, it's not that big a deal. Jesus has saved me. I'm okay. That it becomes a problem. Do not diminish the view of sin in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would give each one of us sober-mindedness, a correct view of sin. Father, we know that there is this discounting, this reduction of its power in your church today where half the time we don't even talk about it. Just talk about, you know, five principles for the best life that you can live, these sorts of things. But Father, what matters is the heart. You care about our hearts being clean. You care about us walking in holiness before you. And it's not by our power. You have given us the Holy Spirit to convict us. Father, we also know that as we just continue in sin, we can sear our conscience. Father, may, not, may that not be the case for us. Father, I pray now that, that if that is the case for some, that you would convict them deeply in this moment, that they are searing their conscience so that no longer do they call what is sin, sin. Father, we thank you for the grace through Jesus Christ that we don't have to live a perfect life, that, that we, we stumble and we will stumble and we will fall. But in your power, we get back up and we mortify the sin in our life and we destroy those things that lead to it and we do everything we can to follow you. We do everything we can to, to keep ourselves pure for you. And Lord, when we take those moments every day to spend time with you, to be in your word, it is not exhausting to do this. It is only when we try to do it by our own power. It is only when we don't give time for you, for relationship with you, for being in your word, for prayer, for all of these things that build us up. When we do those things, this becomes easy because it becomes about the power of you working in us. So, Father, I pray that each of us would approach this with the right heart. Help us to kill the lust and the sin that is present in our lives through the power of your Son and your Spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen.